All right, everyone open up your Bibles to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. The recorder has begun. I'm not editing it. The lesson has begun. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. I need a reader. Loud and clear. All right, Dustin is reading. Everybody follow along in your Bible. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Flip over to Psalm 63. Reader for verse 8. Sammy. My soul falleth hard after thee, thy right hand I don't know what it is, but these verses keep coming back to light in recent weeks. We actually kicked off our How to Study the Bible series in our introductory, introductory week about, what, nine weeks ago now? And we looked at these verses. And we saw them again recently, both in our review last Wednesday and two Wednesdays ago when we were studying Romans chapter 8 about all of us, now that we're cut loose from our flesh, we should be following after something. We should be getting after something. Are we getting after the Spirit of God? Are we getting after our Bibles? Or are we following after the flesh? So what's getting your time? What's getting your talent? What's getting your treasure? Is it God or is it yourself? Because those are the only two options. And so as we kind of come, we're about midway through our study here of how to study the Bible. And I thought it was fitting for us to kind of go through, just kind of take a pause and go through a review of the rules so far and make some practical application of all of the rules with a couple of verses in the Bible that may be a little bit hard to understand, a little bit tricky, have some apparent contradictions. And they're just really tough passages that they appear to be saying one thing, but if we don't rightly divide the word of truth, if we don't properly study the Bible out... We could be completely lost as a goat, just as many other Christians are today with some of these passages. But the point I wanted to make, and that's why I'm kicking things off right on the top of your study sheet with this heart check of reviewing to see where you are so far. Ask yourself, in the last eight weeks, how many of these rules have you actually applied? How much time have you actually set aside to not just read your Bible, but to study it? Because you realize that you are called as a Christian to add to your faith knowledge. You realize that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the very last words of Peter in all of the Bible, he commands us that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we started off this series by rating ourselves. How is our desire and our love, our pursuit of the Bible in our life? We started off the series with that, but ask yourself this. How has, what is your current desire and love since the study began? Rate yourself. Put it down. Since the study began... How has it impacted you? How has it changed the way that you do Bible reading? And be honest, no one's going to look at it. Except maybe your neighbor next to you, but I guarantee theirs is probably close to the same. And then when you look at that number that you circled, how does it compare to what your reading was in week one? 
Because if your rating is the same or less, there is a problem there. The question is, do you even remember what that rating was in order to be able to honestly evaluate yourself? Some things to consider. Keep that in mind as we go through the rest of today. But as a quick review, we got these eight rules that we've covered so far today. And again, with the little activity we're going to have here in a little bit, all of these rules will be applied. So it's good for us to take a review and look at them. So point, the, the first point that we looked at, what was the first rule of Bible study? Who can remember? Andy and I almost shooting each other. Thank you. Good job. Okay, so the videos weren't for nothing. Andy's not even in here for the compliment. Uh, he only gets one. One for a year. The context factor. And the context factor states that the context of a passage must always be considered to determine the proper meaning. You don't just want to look at the verse. You want to look at the verses before it, the verses after it. And in some cases, you need to consider the chapter before and after. And in very rare cases, you need to consider what is the overall theme and topic of this book? What is the main idea that the author is trying to get behind of this book in order to understand the context? And then next we looked at what was rule number two. Noah, Caleb, and Kendall. People factor. To understand the Bible, one must consider the people group to which God is specifically writing. There's the Jews, there's the Gentiles, and there's the church of God. Again, all scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable for each and every single one of you, no matter where you're reading. However, not all of it is written to you. And that kind of leads directly into rule number three with the Pez. What's that factor? The dispensation factor. The Bible has divisions in which God does things a certain way and typically within a different time frame. Those last two rules kind of go hand in hand together because sometimes not only is God talking to a different people group, but he's talking to a different people group in a different time. Maybe sometimes in a future tense of things that haven't happened yet. And then next, we looked at rule number four, which was the application factor. There are three basic applications of all Scripture that you read. What are they? First one is historical. And then the next two are kind of, they're inverted, doesn't really matter when. Doctrinal and devotional. Doctrinal, what is the deeper teaching here? What is the maybe prophetic future teaching here? And then devotional, how does this practically apply to me today? And then next, it led into week number five, where we looked at the every word slash event factor. This teaches that God has chosen every word and event in the Bible for a specific purpose. And you need to pay attention to every word, including tiny words like, like, yes. and as. Hannah knows that very well. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, we looked at the comparison factor. This rule simply states that the Bible is of no private interpretation. All interpretations must be made by comparing Scripture with Scripture. You can't just take a Bible passage as is. You need to study it. You need to get a Bible cross-referencing tool like Blue Letter Bible and look up other verses that are similar with the verse in question and see what those verses have to say about that. Sometimes it means 
implementing the previous factor of the every word. What word shows up in this verse that I can take this word and search it elsewhere in the Bible and come up with what the answer is? Might need to do that today. And then next, we looked at the creation factor. Simply states the invisible eternal truths of God can be enhanced by studying the creation He has made. Also may come up today. And then last, what did we look at last week? It was the... The war to end all wars. Thank you. Goodness, I was going to say, if you guys didn't know what last week's was, we're all in trouble. The contradiction factor. There are no contradictions in the Bible, only apparent ones. And always give the Bible the benefit of the doubt when you come across that. So, in review, or application, I should say, I got all four verses, and all four of them have apparent contradictions in them. So here's the thing. When you look at these verses, you're going to break up in groups here in a little bit. We're going to spend some time. I'll let you know here when we're going to get back together. We're going to spend some time looking at these passages in our groups. And again, all of these passages, they implement more than just one rule of Bible study. They implement several. Each and every single one of these are used to some degree or another, twisted out of context by churches, pastors, teachers of supposed Christianity, and they use these passages, the first one excluded, because that was the one we didn't get to last week. So for those of you who didn't get a chance to study that one out this week, now's your chance. But the other three after that, they're all verses that are used to purport or to teach some kind of false doctrine in the church today. And you need to implement these rules of Bible study to discredit that. So the first thing you should come up with when you look at these passages in your group is say, what does this passage appear to be saying? That goes against or contrary to what the Bible says. And then you need to utilize the other rules of Bible study. Thankfully, we just reviewed it, so hopefully you're paying attention. You implement the rules of Bible study and figure out how would I properly discredit that false teaching and how do I properly apply these scripture truths using the rules of Bible study. So, you guys go ahead and break up in your groups. We are going to get back together here in... We're going to get back together here at 15 till, so you got 20 minutes. 20 minutes divided by four, that's five passages, or five minutes per passage. should be able to do it, especially if you're working together. So split up into teams, grab your sheets, don't dilly-dally, get to work. Oh, I will say this. Do the first one last, because that one uh, might take you guys some time. Do the other three first. My dad took me. Or Brendan. Your dad was a all right. So for the first one, the apparent contradiction from last week with 1 Kings 6 1 and Acts 13. First off, somebody tell me what is the contradiction that seems to be going on here in this passage? Passages, rather. The first one. Kendall? What years did you guys end up getting? This one might be a little bit tough, and I just was checking some things, and I just realized that it might need uh, some more cross-referencing in order to figure it out. But 
What, it, what was the discrepancy of the years? First Kings 6, 1 Kings 6.1 very simply says how many years from the time of the Exodus until 480. 480. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what did you guys get? What was the calculation you guys got for Acts? I got 573. Yes, you're right. How did you land that, Shay? Because there's one factor that's actually missing. How did Shay land that? Well, no, because I, I, I think, what is it? Verse 18. So let's everyone turn to Acts 13. Did you Google? She did. She did. Um, <laughs> but that's her resource. That is true. As long as a credible source. <laughs> but I guess if you had to explain it. All right. So in Acts chapter 13, we got to get rolling here, so let's pay attention. Acts chapter 13, verse 18, we see that from the time after they got out of Egypt in the wilderness, they were there for how long? You guys can read, right? Okay, 40 years. Great, great, great. So you have 40 years there. And then after that, now pay attention. This is where things get tricky, and this is actually your clue of where you should look after this. And verse 19, and he destroyed seven nations, divided the land of Canaan. That's the book of Joshua. And after that, he gave unto them what? Judges. Judges about the space of how long? Wow. I kind of made out 450, but thankfully I read the passage before I heard that mumbled together phrase. All right, and then after that, they desired a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of how long? 40 years. And that's where it kind of gets a little bit tricky, because it talks about David after that in verse 21, but it doesn't say how long David reigned for. If you guys are paying attention, we covered this last week. How long was he reigning for? 40 years. And then in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, you also find out that Solomon, it talks about the three years that Solomon reigned for. But it's there in Acts 16. And so that's why we added up three. Somebody help me out. Eight plus nine is what? Carry the one. 573. Now the reason I did this one is because this is actually... I guess if you really wanted to boil it down, there's a lot of apparent contradictions. This is the one that so many biblical scholars and so many atheists and agnostics say, look, right there's an error in your Bible. Because Acts says 573, and 1 Kings 6 says 480. Now, if you guys think that the answer lies somewhere in the numbers that are in Acts 13, where do you think it is? Sammy? No, I have a question. Okay, yes. What, what verse was the three in? It's the reign of Solomon. Uh, oh, you mean where you actually find that in? Yeah. I believe it's 1 Kings chapter 2, 11, where it mentions that how long that he was reigning for at the time. Uh, reigned. Oh, actually, yeah, it says that David reigned 40 years in 1 Kings 2, 11, and then 30 and 3 years. I have to check out and see where it says about Solomon. Okay. More on that next week. I will check that out. But if you guys were to look at the Acts 13 passage, where do you think the discrepancy would be found given these numbers that are up here? I mean, the 40 for Exodus seems very, very simple. 40 for the years of David's reign. The 40 that they also mentioned, that's pretty, pretty simple there. Three years for Solomon. I'm going to bet that since this is blowing away the other numbers by a vast margin... The discrepancy is found in that 450, which what did the Bible say in Acts 13 that those years were found in? Or what book was that found in? During the reign of the judges. So obviously there's a timetable that's off here. 
So I don't know, did anybody actually go through and figure out, hmm, maybe it's in Judges. This one's a bit tricky, and that's why I wanted to kind of nail it first, also because we didn't get to it last week. But you know how you would simply figure this out? Once you see that the discrepancy is obviously clearly in Judges, search the word years and narrow your search down to just the book of Judges. And you know what you'll find? In Judges chapter 3, verse 8 and verse 14, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Trishan Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served that guy how long? Eight years. Eight years they're in bondage, because if you recall from the book of Judges, there are seven cycles of sin that Israel finds themselves in, where they wander away from God, and they end up serving the enemy. Huh. They're serving eight years to this guy. And then in verse 14, it says, The children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab. How long? 18 years. Again, this is just simply doing a search for the word years through Judges. You do have to whittle out a couple verses where it talks about why is it doing that. Not you have to search out the verse where it talks about why is it doing that. That was me talking about the lag that's going on in the PowerPoint. Judges 4.3 says, And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, because they found themselves in bondage, and he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he, God, mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So we have 20 years again where they find themselves in bondage, oppressed to an enemy, not serving the, the God of Israel. Whoops. Was that it? Stinkeroonie. <laughs> All right, so we had 4-3. I'm missing the other two passages are 6-1 and 13-1. You got that, Shay? 6-1, go ahead and read it. Okay. <laughs> Who said Shay had it? Liars. Does anybody want to turn to those two passages real quick or flip through it in your phone? Judges 6-1 and 13-1. Now, as I was saying earlier, the verses that you would need to whittle out in your search through the book of Judges for the word years, you don't look at the years that it says how long a judge reigned for, because that's when they were serving God. If a judge reigned for that long, God already covered it in Acts 13. You guys see the pattern. What we're seeing here are the years that Israel spent away from God, not serving Him. I think this might be where the discrepancy lies. Somebody read verse six or chapter six, verse one. Turn to thirteen. Yep, you got it. Seven years, and then thirteen. One, Dustin. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. 40 years. All right. So let's do the math and see if we tally up the missing years. So we had 480 years in 1 Kings 6 1, right? All right. So 8 and 7 is 15, plus 8 is what? 23. 4, 5. Wait. 4, 5, and then plus 4, 93. All right. 93 plus 480 is what? Coincidences. Contradictions work themselves out. When you take a sword, when you take a sword 
and rightly divide in a Cane's parking lot. <laughs> obviously, obviously, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, God does not count the years that Israel is in bondage because they're not serving Him, they're not walking with Him. But in the book of Acts, God allows Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to talk and say that it was 573, and both are right. There's no discrepancy there. You just need to work it out. All right. Does that make sense? Okay, good, good. Again, that's one where there are a lot of agnostics and atheists that say there's errors in your Bible. You just need to take the time and rightly divide it out. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Let's go there. Sorry, I ended up taking more time on that one than I needed, but I noticed that I didn't have the... The reference down, and I still need to get you guys that reference for Solomon's reign of three years, where that factors in. Um, so again, if you guys need to leave, anybody serving today? All right, if you need to leave, go at 10, listen to the podcast later for the rest of these answers. All right, verse 21. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does this appear to be saying? Baptism saves you. Prove it wrong. Implementing the rules of Bible study. Kendall? Well, first of all, we're talking about Noah. And it's like relating it, and it says it's a figure. Mm -hmm. saying like that it actually saves you. And you figure that out by looking at the context of verse 20, correct? Keep um, going. And then in Luke chapter 23, verses 40 through 43, it's when Jesus is on the cross, and the thief next to him. Um, asked him like how to get saved and Jesus explains it to him. And yeah. it's not like you can get baptized before you can come to heaven. He says like surely I will see in paradise. Mm -hmm. And it's always great to have those kind of cross-references in your arsenal to be able to back up if you're talking with somebody because I guarantee you guys, you guys are going to school with kids who go to churches that believe these doctrines and their churches use these verses to back up their point. So it's always good to have more on that. A couple other points on this factor. So we already talked about the context of chapter 20. It's talking about Noah. Did Noah get saved by water? No, not at all. In fact, water is what brought forth what? Judgment. And I guess if I wanted to implement the creation factor, and I look at rain as we looked at a couple weeks ago, it's a picture of what you guys already said, the judgment of God. So judgment of God couldn't have brought forth salvation. And then again, as Kendall already mentioned, you pay attention to that every word factor because he says that baptism is a, uh, or he says that the like figure, even baptism also now saved us. What did Noah do? What's the figure of Noah's ark a picture of? What did Noah have to do in order to be saved? Get in the ark. We have to get in Christ in order to be saved. And then as you compare scripture with scripture, also factoring in the every word factor, does baptism in the Bible always mean water baptism? According to Romans chapter 6, it's also talking about a spiritual baptism that takes place when we have been placed in Christ, immersed in him. That's what it's talking about here. And not to mention also just looking at the every word factor and just utilizing common sense. Look at verse 21 again. He says, baptism doth now also save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, 
which happens whenever you take a bath. He says, not that. No, but the answer, using your free will choice of what to do with Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for your sins, the answer of a good conscience toward God. When you realize your need for a Savior and you respond out of your conscience and free will to receive Him, you have been placed in Christ. Everybody clear on that? Everybody see how there's multiple factors of Bible study you can implement that help explain that rule? Does everybody see how there's multiple factors of Bible study that help explain that rule? Okay, thank you. Alright, next, turn over to James chapter 2. James 2.24 Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Yikes. How do you explain this one? Well, first off, what's it appear to be saying? Pretty obvious. Jake? Uh, it appears to be saying that uh, you can get saved by works. Mm -hmm. Or works plus faith. Faith plus baptism. Faith plus communion. Faith plus going to church. Faith plus making sure you do good things. A lot of churches purport that. And good night. When you consider the context of this passage, it doesn't really seem to help you at first. Look at verse 20. But wilt thou know, O, man, o vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Yikes! And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God and was computed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. That contradicts everything we're looking at on Wednesday nights. How do you explain it? Jake? I just looked at verse 26, and it says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Okay. So, like, if you're faithful, then you will do works. That's a great use of the devotional application, because that's really what the passage is saying here and how it applies to you and I today. Hey, look, as I've been hammering on Wednesday nights, if you're in here and you claim to be saved, you claim to know Christ, you should have evidence that backs it up. A faith that really works, really works. We were saved not because of our works, but now that we are in Christ, we should be doing things that show we belong to Him. If not, your faith just might be dead, as in you were never saved to begin with. That's the devotional application of that. But how do you utilize the other rules of Bible study and show that that's not talking about good works here? Because when you take it on its face value, it still seems, doctrinally speaking, that's what it's going at. The context, as I said, made things a little bit scarier. But really, the answer is found in the context. Alright, so somebody tell me. First thing he mentions here, talking about how Abraham was justified by works. Well, first off, before I go further, anybody else have any answers to how they think they can refute this? Everybody else get stumped on it? You guys seem like you want to try answering, but you're hesitant. Take a shot in the dark. Go ahead. No? All right. We went to Ephesians, but that's not like in context. Oh, but it's a good comparing Scripture with Scripture. 
And like I said in the last one, it's good to have an arsenal of those verses to help back up your There's more overwhelming evidence that shows salvation is by grace through faith in the Bible. And if that's what you have to go on when you're in front of a friend at school and they're asking about this, it should be enough. But then you might be sitting at Starbucks one day and a youth pastor of a Calvinistic church comes up to you and knows you and starts questioning you on your belief system and you might have to be able to give an answer to that. Maybe it's happened once or twice before. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yes, Sammy. It's like in the time of Abraham, so they sacrifices is what they had to do. And yeah. Like their works. Yes. According to the Old Testament law, or in Abrahamic, the covenant days, yes, it was faith, but he had to have works to back it up. Otherwise, it was nothing. So the very first thing he mentions is Abraham sacrificing Isaac. What passage did that occur in? Genesis what? 22. The next passage it brings up is Abraham believing God and it was counted to him for righteousness. When did that happen? Genesis 15, 6. So what came first? Abraham believing God in Genesis 15, 6 came first. And then evidence of his faith came second in Genesis 22. Might want to be writing these passages down in case you didn't get it in your groups. And you might want to take these notes and put them into your Bible because you might be challenged on it in your faith one day. So Abraham believed God. He trusted God. And his works came afterwards. This passage has those two events flip-flopped. Maybe God did that to try to confuse some of you and cause you to actually study it out because you should be pursuing after him. You should be following hard after him. You should want to add to your faith knowledge. And maybe he said it to cause a stumbling block because as we looked at last week, some people, they have idols in their heart. God will answer them according to the idols of their heart. So yes, historically speaking, implying the application factor, the dispensation factor, it was Abraham and faith and works indeed saved him. But doctrinally speaking, and this is where we also implement the people factor, did anybody check out and see who is James written to? The very first verse, the very first chapter? What does it say? To the twelve tribes scattered abroad. This book is for you. It's not to you. And that leads to the doctrinal application of this book. Because one day in the future, as we talked about before, after you get past the book of Philemon, you start going into all of these books from Hebrews to Revelation that have a doctrinal application for the tribulation period, where you have all of these Jews scattered abroad during the tribulation period, and they need to know that they better make sure to do works to back up their faith. Otherwise, they're not saved. So that's the other thing that you have there. And devotionally speaking, our faith should have works to back it up. We don't have time to cover 1 Corinthians 14 too. All you need to know is, maybe I'll try to implement it next week in our review. All you need to know is that Paul's rebuking Corinth in, in the first letter to Corinthians because they're doing things wrong. He's not commending them for speaking in tongues. And you might want to pay specific attention to the word 
other or unknown tongues rather. An unknown tongue is gibberish, and he clearly lines out in chapter 14. It ain't right what you guys are doing, what you're speaking. So maybe we'll cover that later, but ran out of time. So you guys see how these other rules, you need to implement them in order to understand these difficult passages? I hope you got the notes down. I hope you got the cross-references down, and I hope you transport them in your Bible and that you are ready to give an answer of everyone that asketh of the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear.